0: I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll begin in just a moment in verse 20. As I was preparing for the sermon this week, I was thinking about those who are preparing for baptism and for joining the church next Sunday evening. And part of that process is they're preparing to share their testimony, their faith story. And the deacons and the pastors have tried to provide kind of a guideline for helping to do that, a simple one. And so they have a worksheet to work through it, kind of the first time, and the sections of it are my life before Christ, and secondly, how I came to Christ, and then thirdly my life since I trusted Christ. And part of what occurred to me is by framing it that way we're assuming that's a good paradigm that's a good model that's a way good way a meaningful way of describing what really happens what really is involved in becoming a Christian becoming a person who is ready to enter the waters of baptism and join in the fellowship of the church. In many ways, my life before Christ, how I came to know Christ, and my life since I trusted Christ is an outline for Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 to 32. We're only gonna spend a little bit of time in verses 14 to 19. So the theme this morning is walking in newness of life. Again, when we think of baptism, and Paul talks about baptism in connection with the beginning of the Christian life in Romans chapter 6, and he says we're buried with him in baptism and we're raised with him to walk in newness of life. The assumption is that the person who's truly become a Christian, who's truly been born again, and has signaled that and expressed that in the waters of baptism, is beginning now to live a new life as a new person. The Bible is filled with the promise of God making things new. New birth, John chapter 3. Rooted in the promise in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new spirit because of the working of his own spirit in people's lives. We live in the time of the new covenant that Jesus established. And he said to the disciples when he was establishing it, I won't drink again of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's the new commandment love one another. Romans 7 verse 6 talks about the Christian life as the new way of the Spirit. This new life is energized, empowered, and directed by the Holy Spirit himself. That's what gives us hope to live it. If any man is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away. The old is that which is characterized by sin and self, Satan's dominion, now the new has come. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, as we'll see, it talks about a new man, a new person, a new identity. Romans 12 talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Titus 3 talks about that we are Saved through a rebirth and a renewal by the Holy Spirit. All of this just gives a, has a momentum that there really is a significant change when a person is really born again as a Christian and begins to follow Christ. Peter talks about a new birth into a living hope. And that hope is the new heaven and the new earth with its capital, the new Jerusalem, described in Revelation 21 and 22, this new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, where righteousness is at home. And the Lord says, as he ushers in the glorious final kingdom of God, the return of the reign of God, behold, I make all things new. When the Bible says that God is making something new, it's essentially saying he's making it the way it's supposed to be, or the way it was supposed to have been all along. Or he's restoring something to the way it was supposed to be. A couple of years ago, I saw one of the college students as they were driving, heading back to campus after the service, and they had a, it was a Buick, La LeSabre, I think, it was one with those you know, eternal engines in it. And so, you know, it just runs forever. The engine does, but all around it, outwardly, they were wasting away. (laughs) And just to see the suspension and the way the car was operated, I said, you really need, and I'm no mechanic, but I said, you really need to have a mechanic take a look at that. That's not how it's supposed to be. And uh, so he took, he went, he saw a mechanic, and he went in for the mechanic's report. And uh, he said to the mechanic, he asked the mechanic, well, what do I need? And the mechanic says, you need a new car. (laughs) And when you really see what sin has done to us, what depravity has done to us, Pastor Keith read the Ephesians chapter 2, and the language can sound kind of extreme, and in language we're about to read... But knowing my own heart, and watching human history, and reading the news, and doing some counseling along the way as a pastor, to be honest, I don't really think the language is extreme at all. I think it's the truth about us. And once the diagnosis has been done about the condition we're in, apart from Christ, apart from the renewing work of the Spirit and the Word, the diagnosis is... You need a new heart, and you need to become a new man, a new woman. And so, here's the testimony outline in Ephesians chapter 4, before I trusted Christ. And Paul says it this way. He's writing to the Christians, to the Ephesians. He planted this church, described in the book of Acts. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Just that way of putting it sends the clear signal that once you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you will, you ought to, no longer live the way non Christians live, non believers live. That's what Gentiles essentially means in that verse. Those who don't know God, who haven't responded to his word no longer live that way. So clearly, there's to be this significant break with the lifestyle the person was living before. That way of living was rooted in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. And again, the the message this morning isn't mainly about this part, but you watch what's going on in human history and in culture and in the West and in America. And West and the America were cultures that were probably more than any other influenced by Christianity and the Judeo-Christian values. But now as that's been repudiated more and more and cast off, It's just bewildering to see the depravities that we're sinking into, the foolishness, the follies, and we all have to support, uh, sort of pretend like it's reasonable or rational when really these lifestyle changes and these other ways of acting and treating one another, it's madness. It's just what in the world is happening, what's gone wrong? As the message paraphrases in Romans 1, once we forgot God, we forgot how to be human. And that's what's going on. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality. We do have a sensual side. We do have a physical side. And sex in its proper place, in its God-ordained place, is a good gift. but. When all we are is animal, when all we are is the sensual, and the spiritual and even the, the intellectual is just sort of cast aside, lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. You just wonder, where will the line be redrawn next month? When in the media, an awards show, or anything like that, there is this manifestation of depravity which would have been absolutely unthinkable a couple decades ago on the part of any adult in America. And now it's celebrated, indulging in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's a life, basically, of sinful self-centeredness. And by the way, that sinful self-centeredness can manifest itself in sensuality and that category of sin. But the Bible's very clear, too, that it can manifest itself in sins of the Spirit, too, in religious pride and a religiosity on our own terms where it's still mainly about us. It's a life of self-centeredness that brings more and more misery to ourselves and to those around us. It's a life that diminishes and degrades us. Remember one more time when Jesus said, the thief, and he meant Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And for those who've never been rescued from his dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the son he loves, they're still under that dominion. They're still under the control of that thief of everything that's good. And he and his strategy, and if this is you, this is what's going on in your life, and you probably have more than a few hints that it's happening, he is working to steal kill and destroy what's good in your life. That's what he does to those who are bond- in bondage to him. So even though it's dramatic language in a way, I think if you reflect, it is the truth about us. Before I came to Christ. Then, to how I came to Christ. And what it means to come to him. And so we go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20. And Paul says, after describing such a life, you, however, did not come to know Christ or to learn Christ, more literally, that way. Surely you were heard of him, you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught... With regard to your, what? Former way of life. You see the assumption that there's going to be a before Christ and an after Christ. There's going to be a former way of life. And now this new way of life that I'm living. You were taught to put off your old self. Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And to be made new in the attitude of your mind. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness that comes from the truth. How can we ever be saved from such a life as Paul was describing? How can we ever really be made new? It's a process, he says. It's a process that begins with hearing. Hearing the gospel. Hearing the good news, faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. It's a process of hearing the gospel and then learning, being taught what the gospel means, what it entails, what it implies, what it leads to. And so we come to find out that Christ is the Savior who died on the cross for our sins, We respond to that by putting our trust in him alone for our forgiveness and to be right with God. But the gospel also tells us, and we need to be taught, and it needs to be explained until we make the connections and we see the implications. The gospel also tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so now we'll have to figure out and to come to know more and more what that means. You came to learn Christ, you heard of Him, and you were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, the reality that is centered in Jesus. The Gospel, the Christian message, is the way things really are. And so when we hear the Gospel, all the rival worldviews are cast away as being wrong and mistaken, being phantoms and follies, we find out, no, this is how the world really is. And figuring out how the world really is and what we are is all centered in figuring out who Christ is as Son of God, Son of Man, Savior, and Lord. Our doctrine is a person, Spurgeon said. We preach Christ, crucified and risen again. More than that, Our faith, really, is all about the person. Knowing Christ increasingly. Not just figuring out the theology, as crucial as that is, as we'll be saying. But in order to know him and to relate to him, Christianity at its core is about relating to him, person to person, day by day, as Savior and Lord. And so even after years of being a Christian, Paul's aspiration remained the same. After years, decades of living for Christ and serving Christ, he still says, I want to know Christ. He knows that relationship will continue to transform him, to prepare him for that life in the world to come where we see him and start to relate to him face-to-face, but it begins when the gospel comes to us, when we hear it, begin to understand it, and where we're taught what it means. Christ is our life, Paul says in Colossians 3, and in Philippians 1, he says simply, to live is Christ. We have to get to that simplicity and to that centrality. Knowing Christ then involves learning and knowing the truth about living that is centered in him. And so Paul continues. He's reviewing because he planted this church. He evangelized these people and then others followed and continued the work. But he knows what was said to them. He knows what was shared and presented and explained. And he goes on to tell them, you were taught... By the way, not as some higher Christian living course months down the road, but in connection with their first encounters with the gospel and Christianity. These are the things that they were taught. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, just notice that phrase again, to put off your old self, the old man. The old self, that phrase, the old person, as in Romans 6 and Colossians 3, designates the whole personality of a person when he or she is ruled by sin. What I was in Adam, what I was before Christ, what I was untouched by the word of God and unrenewed by the Spirit, that's old man. And he said, you were taught that conversion amounts to putting off the old man, the old self. We could well say in our own time, the old identity. Identity has come to be such a powerful concept now in our culture, isn't it? Identity politics. And people define themselves by their race or their ethnicity. People define themselves by their status or their position in society maybe by their job or by their career. More and more, people define themselves by their sexual identity. The Christian doesn't find his or her identity primarily in any of those things. That's old man. That's old person, old self. Any believer, whatever they used to be, now will become new man new woman in Christ. With That will be their fundamental identity, their relationship to him. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off. It's, it's the idea of taking off clothing and getting rid of it once and for all. To put off your old self, our disordered desires. He said that old self was being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Being born a sinner, and that's the truth about every one of us, means that every one of us was born in our depravity with disordered desires, desires that if we follow them and if we just follow our heart are going to ruin all of us and lead every one of us to hell unless they're repented of. It's not just those guilty of a certain lifestyle who have disordered desires that are going to lead their, to their damnation. That's the truth of every person apart from Christ. And so he says, your former way of life was characterized by a corrupting deceitful desires. Desires that deceive. Desires that lie to us. that." Tell us lies about who we are and what matters most. That tell us the lies that if we give in to them and go with them, then we'll find happiness. No, you won't. Your desires, you're like, oh, they feel the most natural thing in the world to me. I know, that's the sad reality because we're depraved. Because we're fallen. Because literally, our hearts are disordered and need to be made new if you follow your heart, you'll follow it onto that broad road that leads to destruction. That's true of every person, not just some who are struggling with a particular kind of desire. And so every person needs the same cure. They need to repent of those disordered desires. They need to say no to them, to put them off, to realize They're corrupting them as a person. Our sins and our sinful desires degrade, deform, disfigure, and diminish us. We have to learn to turn from them. And Paul says, when I did the evangelism, you heard that right from the get-go. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. That's the negative aspect of conversion. Saying no to ungodliness and worldly lust. That's what grace teaches people to do, Paul says in Titus 2. But positively, he says, you were also taught to be renewed in the attitude of your mind, in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, the new identity, created to be like God, in righteousness and holiness that comes from the truth. He's harking back all the way to Genesis when we were made like God in his likeness, in his image. And there's such a dignity, there's such a beauty to being a human being who's rightly relating to God and who's living not selfishly but living for his glory and for the good of others. That's the righteousness and holiness that now Christianity and the gospel call us to. And Paul says, we were taught that you needed to be renewed. We taught you that you needed to be renewed, that you need to be made new in the attitude of your mind. Doesn't it sound like Romans 12, those who belong to Christ are not to be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world? What this world says is right and valuable All of those patterns don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, this age that's on the way out, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, of your outlook, of the way you think about everything. That's the means of transformation so that we will be able to test and approve what God's will is, which is? Good, pleasing and perfect. Here at South, those who are being baptized are, are given a Bible. And I think that's a great tradition. It's our way of saying to someone who's come up under the waters of baptism, who's come to walk in newness of life, "Here's your map. Here's your curriculum. Now, you've just started. It's a terrible version of conversion to think, oh boy, I'm on the way to heaven. Hmm. Now what? Not sure what else comes next. That's not New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity welcomes you as you come out of the waters of baptism and as you get ready to shake the right hand of fellowship with the other Christ followers, and says, here, this is what you need now to guide you. This is the truth that you need to sanctify you. This is the truth that you need to comfort and encourage you. This is the truth that you need to renew your mind so that you'll give up those self-destroying sins and patterns and ways of thinking and attitudes that you've been trapped in so far. Here, this is the word of life. This is the message that you need. Paul says, We preach Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Him. The new Christian continues to learn Christ and what it means to follow as His disciple. And that learning process includes in God's plan being taught by those gifted and called by Christ to be pastor-teachers. He just said that in chapter 4. The book of Acts makes it clear that Paul's ministry in Ephesus lasted over two years. This is what he was teaching and explaining to them. And here we were reminded that Paul was not only a herald, a preacher of the gospel in the first place, he says, I was also a teacher of the gospel." I explain to people, now what? And those explanations are inspired epistles that we have in our own New Testament now. There are lessons for us when it comes to our own evangelizing today. We, sometime, we somehow have gotten to the place where we want it to happen very fast. Maybe one event that people show up at. Maybe one or two conversations and we're sort of, impatient that by then, they haven't responded to the message. But the more that you reflect, the more that you think how darkened their minds are, how much folly is still crammed in there, and what the world is saying to them, bombarding with its catechizing messages day after day after day, it's not at all surprising to me that most of the time we're going to need to slow down and teach, and explain, and have real conversations, and bring real answers to the people that questions have as we help them to learn Christ. Finally, Paul turns to my life now that I've come to Christ, now that I've started to follow him, Beginning in verse 25, Paul moves to practical, specific applications of the truth he's been preaching. Stott says he moves from the nitty-gritty of Christian behavior, he moves to the nitty-gritty of Christian behavior, telling the truth, controlling our anger, honesty at work, kindness, forgiveness, love, sexual purity... This is the new life in Christ, and so we'll just go through some sections of it quickly. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. Every one of these sections could be a message. These are the virtues that must characterize us as a Christian and must characterize our Christian fellowship. Virtues of honesty, transparency, integrity, sincerity, without hypocrisy. We can't be double-tongued people so that others are trying to figure out what did he really mean when he said that? What is he, what's his real agenda? What's she really after? Or presenting ourselves one way in some gaslighting kind of way, but that's not what we're really doing. None of that goes with the new life in Christ, Paul says. In your anger, do not sin. He acknowledges that anger is bound to happen to us, but it's not to curdle into sin. And then this, and I'm just going to have time to throw these out here. You'll need to customize the application like I do. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. If something has happened and there is anger, that's acknowledged but you need to deal with it in a timely way. The person living under the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the word of God, doesn't let anger and bitterness and resentment just simmer day after day after day. You do that and you'll give the devil a foothold into your life, Paul says. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. This probably refers to things like pilfering at work, and I wish we had more time to go into it. Not only are they not to steal any longer, but repentance always replaces a vice with a virtue, it seems. Now you're to do something useful with your own hands that you might have something to share. You used to steal, now you share. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths or from your fingertips in what you post, type, tweet, or text, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Put Ephesians 4.29 across the top of your laptop, your tablet, whatever it might be, and let that guide. No unwholesome and only that which is beneficial and upbuilding and brings grace to others. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then verse 31. Get rid of. Get rid of it. All. Every form, every species of bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling. It's a word kind of hard to define. It means like angry, abusive, arguing. Get rid of all of that. And slander, speaking evil, communicating evil of others, along with every form. You know his language, he's just he's trying to cover all the... Ba- every form of malice professing Christians who are mean. And they stay mean. And they treat others abusively. And they're mean. And they somehow justify their form of malice. And Paul will have none of it. You have got to get rid of every form of malice. Every form of that kind of abusive meanness, which, by the way, the Bible says in other places, God himself will judge and punish. Instead, verse 32, be kind. You know, some fighting fundamentalists and some discerning Christians today don't seem to have much of a place for these kinds of virtues, but they're big in Paul's description of the spirit-empowered life. You be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. In fact, he goes on to say, and there's no chapter breaks when he was writing, so in chapter five, verse one, follow God's example, or but more literally, be imitators of God. I'm telling you, that's the new life in Christ. When you're a new man, you're a new woman in Christ, this is what you aspire to. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Have you ever known someone who once they became a Christian, people said about him, you know, he's he's like a new man. Or she's just... She's just like a new person. That's a very, very good sign. That's what's supposed to be happening. I want to finish with one quote from good old C.S. Lewis when it comes to what needs to happen in our lives. Think of becoming a new person as God's remodeling project. It's a pretty good analogy because it's not, it doesn't all happen right away by a long shot. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to remodel that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that the jobs, those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You were thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Is anything like Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 2 your testimony and faith story? I just wanted to revive the sense of, wow, new person, new life in Christ. And with the Holy Spirit's help, I can go forward and make progress and live out more and more what it means to be a new creation. I want us to close in just a minute. Familiar song, I often turn to it the song out Calvary, I'll read the first two verses, but then we'll sing in closing in a minute the third verse of application. Before I came to Christ, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not that for me he died on Calvary. Then by God's word at last my sin I learned and I trembled at the law I used to spurn until my guilty soul, imploring, turned to Calvary. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me, and there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Father in heaven, may our souls find liberty and the new freedom of living under the easy yoke of Christ, as we are remembering today what it means to become a new person, to live a new life, with a new power and a new heart. We pray in his worthy name, amen.